I'm back, baby. <laughs> it's been two weeks. It's just not right. All right, uh, Matthew four this morning. What? It's a surprise for Matthew. Yeah. Well, it's the only one that has this story, so. We're running through the life of Christ in our series on Christology. Uh, last week, does anybody other than Amanda and Mom tell me what we talked about? Armor of God. No. Oh, that, was a, that, that was a sermon. No. For Sunday school. Uh, other than YouTube. Oh, it was... Uh... We get it wrong with like the nature of God or the, the Jesus. I mean, the it was about Jesus. It's pretty, I, mean, hey, that's I feel like Lizzie could have given me that one. <laughs> I'll get a piece of candy. No. I'm gonna what be was, right though. I know it's like it was about like Jesus or God and they're what they're about. Need a little more detail. The words not popping in my head. I need more. Oh, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be baptized, but he was anyway. Because John the Baptist ate locusts. I feel like he stole your thunder, but yeah. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm being 100% honest, I didn't get my answer very fairly either. (gasps) Where did you get your answer? I can't reveal my source. You don't have to because you're married. That's that's a law. You don't. Well, if she knew it, it was me. I'm good, but I I figured I saw you laughing back there when he was like, "I can't reveal my source." So you revealed yourself. Never. I I I wasn't going to say anything until you like. Never play poker. (laughs) Never do it. (laughs) You will lose all your money. Yeah. So the baptism of Christ is where we started because we just got through with Christmas, so we didn't really need to cover the Christmas story again. Um, so we started with the baptism of Christ. We're kind of going through his life. We're not going to hit every story involving Jesus in the whole Bible, but we're going to hit some of the highlights um, that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily hear, uh, hopefully, in this uh, lesson series on the life of Christ. Uh, so in Matthew 4, anybody take a guess as to what we're talking about? Lazarus. Do you not even have your Bible or anything? No. You said take a guess. That was a guess. I have a lot to be wrong with Take that. a guess for those that are in Matthew 4. See, that's what I wanted you to think. But we're not. No. Yeah, because, yeah. All I had to do was read the red stuff, and I kind of knew what it was. What is it? It's the where uh, he gets tempted by the devil. No. That's where you are. That's what I wanted you to think. But no, it's man should not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeded, then the devil—that is the exact same thing he just said. Yeah, and also no. So I got it on my phone. Well, then get your phone out. What's <laughs> yours? If you're going to be the most vocal one, you need to at least have your Bible out. <laughs> I guess that's a good point. You sound like my teachers. <laughs> at least have your book in front of you. Come on. 
I mean, if you're going to try to give answers, at least open the book, you know? It's just all the guesswork I need. <laughs> Matthew 4. <laughs> Good grief. All right, we're getting there. Sorry, we've been, we've been off for two weeks. We've been off for a couple of weeks. I need to wrangle these people back in. <laughs> Holy cow. Something about John and Zebedee on a boat and nets and... No. Holes were too big or something. I the story is about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, in our doctrine, we're going to get into this in church doctrine, but what we believe is when Jesus started his earthly ministry, he started the first church, right? You have a lot of people that believe the church started in Acts 2. Uh, we will, I will explain why they're wrong and we're right when we get to that in church doctrine, because I don't want to get ahead of myself. But when Jesus started his ministry, bless you. He also, thank you, uh, he also started the first church. He was the first pastor. The disciples were the first members. And so it was the first church here in the Gospels, and it really starts here in Matthew 4. Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 17. Matthew 4. And it says, From that time Jesus began to preach. And to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is uh, indicative of the first time Jesus ever preached or began ministering uh, a message of salvation or the gospel or teaching people about himself or his heavenly father. So this is the beginning of his ministry here in Matthew 4. And we see firstly this morning is uh, in... The beginning of his earthly ministry and starting the first church, we see uh, him calling his first disciples, which, as I said, were the first members of the church. There in verse 18, it says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. We talked about this last week a bit, but I'll, I'll reiterate it for those of you that either didn't get to hear it or uh, have since forgotten. But how is it that they knew to follow Jesus if Jesus was just like, looked like an ordinary man? He looked like everybody else in that day, in that time, in that place. He's just a guy. A guy walked across. The street of your house as you're standing outside and told you to follow him, would you just be like, okay, cool, where are we going? No, you probably wouldn't do that. So how did they know to follow Jesus? Because of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preaching about Christ, and this is his day and time, and the Messiah is coming. and uh, His sermons you can read there. Um, but then Jesus shows up, and as Jesus shows up, he points to him, points to him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. So it's, it's because of John the Baptist that Peter, uh, that Peter and Andrew knew to follow Christ, because they knew this is the Christ, the Messiah. That's how all the disciples knew to follow Jesus. Jesus is walking by the money-changing table uh, to a man named Matthew, and uh, says, Follow me, and Matthew just gets up and follows him. Matthew knew it was Jesus because of John the Baptist. That's why the Bible refers to John the Baptist as the forerunner for Jesus Christ. Think of him 
as the guy who gathered the building materials necessary for Jesus to construct the first church. Right? He gathered the people that would be the first ever church members. And that was Peter and Andrew. And then we see also um, in verse 21... It says, and going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So now we have James and John, who are also brothers, and they're following Jesus. So we have the first ever church members here. Check the time. And it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So, he's got his first disciples. He's got a, a bit of a gathering. He's in Galilee. That's where he starts his ministry. And you can read that above, verse 17, a little bit, um, where he goes into Galilee to begin his ministry, because that's what prophecy says. That's what Isaiah preached years and years before that when Christ came and started his ministry, it would begin in Galilee. And so that's what Jesus did. So he's in Galilee. <clears throat> the first thing he does after calling the disciples is he goes about uh, curing the sick and uh, ministering to Galilee, which is number two, number one is calling his first disciples, and number two this morning is curing the sick in Galilee. The first thing he does is he goes teaching in the synagogues. Now, who remembers the story from when Jesus was a little boy? What happened? He was in the temple and mm-hmm. he was teaching everybody. Yeah, he was teaching the, the masters. Right. He was teaching the, uh, the those basically today would be equivalent with uh, like theological doctrines, stuff like that. Uh, men who were very well versed in these things, and he was teaching them things. And uh, that's, that's an incredible thing. <clears throat> that was the story where uh, Mary and Joseph left Jesus at the temple. If you've ever been a kid whose parents left you somewhere, it makes you feel a little better, doesn't it? To know, you know, Jesus got left somewhere too by uh, a mom that was like hand-picked for him by God the Father himself. He was like, she's going to be the best mom that God the Son can have. And then she left him at the temple one day. Makes you feel a little better, doesn't it? You're like, okay, I'm, I'm in with a good crowd here. You know? I know Josh has been left places before. But it makes you feel good to know that so is Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, to be the one that left Josh places, it must make you feel good to know Mary did the exact same thing to Jesus, you know? You're in with good company. But while he was there, he was teaching the masters, the, the doctorate uh, uh, holders, things that they didn't know about things that they were supposed to be experts in. And so <clears throat> I don't think you were teaching law while you were uh, left at the city hall, but you never know. That's true. I don't know. <clears throat> Make sure you remember it was twice. Yeah. Sorry. My Bible's torn a little bit. Get it fixed. Okay. So he's had this knowledge from the time he was a child, which really just re-solidifies the God-man aspect of Jesus. It's not as though he grew and developed into 
the the Messiah one day, and he like developed that or something. He's always been God, even as a baby, he was God. And uh, him being left at the temple kind of teaches us that. And they get back and they're scared and they're terrified and they're a little upset. And they said, and they were upset, and we're looking for you forever. Didn't you know to come with? He says, and his response to them is, how did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Like, of all the places you thought God in flesh would be, how is this not the first place you thought I would be? Is at the temple. You know, and so it, it really solidifies that for us, but also it kind of re-engages us here when he starts his ministry. One of the first things he does is he begins teaching in the synagogues. And I don't know exactly what his lesson was, but I know most of the time when you hear Jesus teaching in the synagogues or he's teaching about the Old Testament, what he does is he takes a story in the Old Testament or a portion of scripture in the Old Testament and he teaches how it applies to him in ways that you don't even realize. Right? Um, for example, he, he's quoting a, a portion of scripture which says, uh, they which sat in darkness saw great light. And he's going through that whole portion of scripture. And when you read that through, you may not necessarily realize it's talking about Christ until you read it in the New Testament and realize he's applying that to himself. Uh, they that sat in darkness saw him, which is the great light. And you can compare that to John 1, when John refers to him as the capital L light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And he takes little portions of scripture like that, and he applies them to himself. And uh, like the story where his disciples are plucking ears of corn so they can eat, but it happens to be on a Sabbath day. right? And they get in trouble by the Pharisees who say that's work. You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath day. To which Jesus replies, uh, did you not hear the story of David? who, when he required bread, went into the temple and ate of the bread that was only meant for the priest to eat, right? And so in other words, they broke the rules for David so he wouldn't starve to death while he was on the run from King Saul. That is exactly what my disciples are doing here. They're, they're breaking the rules so that they don't starve to death because God is more interested in people than he is the letter of the law. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach them there. You know, so he takes these stories and he applies them to himself, right? And he shows shows himself in ways he never thought before. Um, there's a there's a psalm uh, about David when he's being chased out of the kingdom by his son, and he writes this psalm in his tragedy, and he says, "My God, my God, why art thou so? Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from uh, from me? And, and the words of my roaring so far from my trouble." And he goes on this, this whole psalm about how he's uh, surrounded by these you know, lions that want to devour him and how he feels like he's drowning you know, in the floodwaters and so forth. And when Jesus is up on the cross, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, uh, which is interpreted in English to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this is incredible for two reasons, the first of which is because he said it in Hebrew, and people didn't speak Hebrew back then, they spoke Greek. So how did he know how to speak it? Because it was a language that they did sometimes speak. The, the original texts of the Old Testament were in Hebrew, so it was taught sometimes. But the common language was Greek. As he's up there, everything else he said was in Greek. Every other phrase on the cross was in Greek. 
when he taught, he was in Greek. When he quoted Old Testament, it was from the, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, translated from the original Hebrew. And so that was what he had been speaking the whole time. But this one phrase, he changed and spoke it in Hebrew. And that is incredible because he's not just talking about himself. He's not, he's not confused and hurt that God the Father forsook him. He's quoting a psalm. Eli, Eli, lam sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This psalm that David wrote about himself when he's being chased out of the kingdom by his enemies. So he's, he's taking this psalm and he's applying it to himself. And he's saying this psalm was written by David about David for what David was going through. But you can see through it how it also applies to me as Christ. And that's what Jesus was trying to, to teach there on the cross is that as the son of David, that, that psalm applied to him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a sever, a schism between God the Father and God the Son there on the cross. The hour of darkness and the earthquakes and the, the dead rising from their graves. It's a, it's a crazy time. And it's all uh, because of that separation between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, and so that is, I imagine, what's going on here as he's teaching in the synagogues. He's showing them things like that, things that they had read their whole life. These psalms were like their songbook, right? This is what they sang in the tabernacle. Sorry, where is that in the Bible? What? Where he says, oh, my God, my God, why? Which psalm is that? Yeah. Well, where doesn't Jesus say it in the Bible? Yeah, on the cross. Yeah. That is one of the things on the cross he says, one of the phrases on the cross that he says. Do you know where it's at in the Bible? Um, I want to say it was, I want to say it was Matthew because Matthew usually deals with those more, uh, Hebrew things. Yeah. Uh, Matthew 27 and verse 46, it says in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so that, is, that really was Jesus' teaching method because it's so effective. Because he takes something you think you know and you think you understand, and then he shows you there's a whole level to these things that you haven't even tapped into yet. And it kind of gets you excited. You know, it's kind of exciting to think there was this thing that I thought I had mastered and fully understood that I got bored with and didn't study anymore. And then come to find out there's a whole world of stuff beneath the surface I didn't even know about. Right. That makes it a little more exciting, a little more interesting to dig into. That's exactly what Jesus did. He appealed to that. He was like, you think, you know, these stories, but you really don't. And he would dive into them and teach them on another level because it does appeal to people to talk about something they're kind of already familiar with. You know, it's, and I do love telling people stories they've never heard before. And that is fascinating to some people, but it's also fascinating to people to say, Hey, you remember this thing that we talked about years and years ago? We'll come to find out there's a lot more to it. And I'm going to tell you about it. That's interesting to people too. Uh, people love to dive into lore of like fictional things. You know, people love to like uh, star Wars fans love to dissect you know, the names of each, you know, soldier and each uh, Jedi and each, you know, thing. And they love to dive into it and, and they, they create like fake stories 
about it and everything, and, and they dive into it. And Lord of the Rings fans are the same way, and Harry Potter fans are the same way, and people love to dive into lore. You know, there's just something about taking a story that you already love and enjoy and finding out there's so much more to it that's just exciting and fun. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took the Bible, he took these stories, he dove into it further to give us something a little more exciting, a little more fun that we had no idea even existed. So he's in the synagogue, he's teaching, he's preaching. It says he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, teaching about salvation. And their need for salvation, because the purpose of the law is not to keep the law. The purpose of the law is to prove to yourselves how easily you break the law. You ever notice that there are some rules in there that seem kind of ridiculous in the Bible? And that they seem kind of ridiculous because they're so impossible to follow? You ever realize that? Uh, Did you know that the Bible says you're not supposed to eat shrimp? So what it says, it says, uh, basically there's a rule in the Bible and I'm going to summarize it for you, but basically if it's got fins and it's got scales, it's okay to eat nothing else. Don't touch it. Yeah. And, uh, as the, I think it was the Marines that they were looking for a rule that was really simple that they could remember to teach their men If they're stranded somewhere and they're looking for something that's safe to eat, what's a good rule to teach them that they know I can get this out of the water and eat it? And their rule was that they would teach them is if it's got fins and if it's got scales, it's okay to eat. Just like the Bible teaches. And so these these rules exist, uh, but also we talked about clean and unclean animals. Right. Now, how many have heard taught in the past that clean and unclean animals is a Jewish thing? Right. That's a Hebrew thing. It doesn't apply to us Gentiles. How many have heard that taught before? Did you know that that's not true? In the story of Noah, which took place thousands of years before Abraham was even a thought in his mother's eye. How did the animals go into the ark? The clean animals went in by um, seven. Mm-hmm. And the unclean was by two. Yeah. But we have a clean and unclean animal separation thousands of years before we even have Abraham, let alone the Jews, let alone any Hebrew. So clean. what that teaches us is that clean and unclean animals aren't just a Hebrew thing. They're not just an Old Testament thing. Clean and unclean animals is something that is just the way God divides it up. Clean and unclean animals don't just apply to the Hebrews. They apply to the whole world because that's how Noah divided up his animals. So bacon is a sin. Do you know that? Yeah. Now, we may not like that, but is that because what I'm saying is untrue, or is that because we like bacon? Because we like bacon. What do we love more? Do we love the Lord, or do we love bacon? Wow, that's a lot of silence, you guys. <laughs> I'm thinking. The Lord, the Lord. That's right. <laughs> now, see, that seems awfully hard to keep, doesn't it? Yes. But that's the point. 
That is the point. It's supposed to be hard to keep. You're supposed to not keep the law. Now that is because it's supposed to show you how desperately you need a savior. Because you cannot save yourself. If every bacon sandwich is a sin that could send you to hell, you can't save yourself. You need somebody to come along to take your sins, to pay the price for your sins, somebody you can accept by grace through faith and just accept their salvation. And that is exactly what Jesus was. He's going through in the synagogue teaching that we can't keep the law. We break the law. Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. The, the, the law is a schoolmaster. It's to teach you about your desperate need of Jesus. Now, the next logical question after that is, if that's the case, and the law is meant for us to break and not to keep, to show us our need of Jesus, then should we just continue to break the law and continue to sin so that grace can abound more and more? Should we just continue to do whatever we want to and not obey the, the word of God? No. Paul wrote in the book of Romans, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says, God forbid, but he says this phrase, he says, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Right, You're supposed to be more mature than that now that you're saved. You're supposed to be beyond those things. And the motivation for obeying the law is never punishment. Right, That's not the punishment for keeping the law and obeying the commandments of God. Right, The punishment for breaking the law is not your motivation. Your motivation is the love of Christ. Because he paid for those sins, because he died on the cross, because he was the best friend you've ever had in your life, He'd never leave you. He never forsook you. When you were in your darkest and scariest places of life, he was there with you, helping you through it, helping you survive, helping you get through on the other side. Because of our love for Christ, we keep his commandments. I touched on this a little bit in our lesson uh, on Wednesday. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? That is the motivation for obeying, is love and not a fear of breaking the rules and the punishment that comes therewith. So this is what Jesus is teaching as he's going through these synagogues. He's, he's teaching, he's preaching the gospel, and then it says he, he's doing some pretty amazing things. He's healing all manner of sickness. So after he gets through teaching, he gets through preaching, he notices some people there in the crowd that have illnesses. It's pretty easy to see some illnesses rather than others, right? Like if a guy's got leprosy, that's pretty easy to see, right? Because the way leprosy works is uh, you can't really feel uh, if you get like a sore, if you get like a, something wrong, like on the inside of your nose or something, you can't tell. What would happen a lot of times is these guys couldn't feel any pain in their nose or anything, and they would get a sore or something in there, and it would fester and get worse, and eventually their nose would just rot off their face. They would have fingers that would just rot off their hands, and so it's pretty easy to see those guys sitting in the crowd, uh, separate from everybody else, obviously, because when they came to town, they had to hold a cloth over their mouth. As they came through town, they had to holler, unclean, 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 the whole way through town. 
And so this guy sitting with his leper colony over here on the other side of the town, trying to listen to Jesus, and Jesus would walk over and heal them. You know, a man sick on his deathbed, and people would bring them to Jesus, and Jesus would heal them. Now, the purpose of healing in the New Testament was proof, and proof specifically for Israel. So that Israel would know that their Savior, because it is a Jewish Savior, it's our religion is a Jewish religion. Did you know that? It's a Jewish Bible. We have a Jewish Savior. The Every author of the Old Testament was Jewish. Of the, the Bible was Jewish. Right? Our religion is a Jewish religion. We inherited it from them. Right? Because they rejected Christ, we inherited that. But... The purpose of these uh, healing of sicknesses and diseases and casting out demons and so forth it was proof to prove to them that he was the Messiah. Right? Because how else could these miracles take place? You've heard of some pretty amazing miracles in the past, right? Uh, you've heard of Elijah or even Elisha healing people. Remember the story when Elisha died? They put his body into that grave with another person. When his body touched the body of that other person, the other person came back to life. We, we did teach on that lesson. We might not have been here, but we did teach that. And it was a pretty incredible thing. But those stories happened very sparsely. You didn't have Elijah sitting around healing whole multitudes of people. It would happen on great rare occasion. Over here, you know, 100 years later over there, and so forth like that. What Jesus is doing is he's healing large crowds of people all at once. It's never been done before. And so that is the purpose of all these incredible miracles. And it says in verse 24, his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken in diverse diseases and torments. And those which were possessed with devils. And those which were lunatic. And those that had the palsy. And he healed them. So these uh, that were possessed with demons, like Mary Magdalene. Anybody ever seen that show, The Chosen? It's, uh, it's a story about the ministry of Christ. It's actually really well done. I usually don't watch, and this is going to sound terrible, but I usually don't watch like Christian-made TV shows because they're way cheesy. It's terrible acting. It's just a bad time. This actually isn't one of those times. The Chosen is actually a very well-put-together show. It's actually pretty enjoyable. The first episode opened up, and i got to admit, uh, it taught me something. Because in this first episode, you see Mary Magdalene. And she's possessed with, uh, I can't remember the exact number, of demons. And she's struggling with it the whole episode. And they even bring in uh, Zacchaeus, which is... Uh, a liberty they're taking, but uh, they, but it does say that nobody could help her. You know, she had all these demons and nobody could help her. And so in the show, Zacchaeus shows up and tries to cast him out and couldn't do it, couldn't help her. The demons were too strong and he left and she's still struggling with it at the end of the episode. She's leaving the, the place that she's at and then all of a sudden you see somebody walk up behind her and casts out the demons that are in her and it's Jesus. And it's actually a really cool moment, really well done. And I was like, that can't be true, right? And I actually went back and looked it up. And yeah, Mary Magdalene was possessed by demons. 
Then Jesus came and cast them out of her, and that's how she first met him. I didn't know it either until I saw that episode and had to go look it up. It's like one verse in all of the gospel that I evidently had happened to miss over all these years. But it really adds some, uh, some background to Mary Magdalene. Uh, so this is what he's doing. He's helping people like that. He's casting out demons. He's doing all of these things. He's, he's becoming famous in Israel, not because of his teaching and not because of his preaching of the gospel, but because of the miracles. Which is sad that that's the case, but that was kind of the point of the miracles. Uh, and it said in verse 25, which is uh, important to what we're about to get into, there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and Decapolis. Galilee and Decapolis are two regions in Israel. So they're kind of like uh, what we would call counties around here. you got like Denton County that we're in right now. You've got Wise County and so forth. Um, these are like Galilee and Decapolis. These are counties, basically, that they're um, traveling from place to place. And as he's traveling, he's got a huge multitude of people following with him. Uh, it says, and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan, even. So you've got people from other countries that have come to follow Jesus. All right, so he's got a massive crowd of people following him as we come into Matthew chapter 5. Now, without looking, can anybody tell me what Matthew 5 is? The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. What? No, you'd be quite wrong. Uh, how, do, how does the Sermon on the Mount start? Anybody remember? What do we start with? Or score. Uh, that is a play. Sermon or Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, what does he start with in the actual sermon? It's actually a pretty famous thing that he teaches. Did you look? Cheater. Yes, it's the Beatitudes. Now, this is important because a lot of people misunderstand this passage. They think that Jesus sat down this multitude and started teaching them the Beatitudes. And that's not what happens. Now, he does have a large crowd following him. We know this from the end of Matthew 4. Now, we open up in Matthew 5. It says, And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Okay, so what we have here is he's with this massive crowd, and he walks away from them into a mountain. He climbs a mountain to get away from the, the multitude. And when he's good and settled there, the only people that follow him up into that mountain are the disciples he called. Peter and James and John and, and so forth, his uh, 12 disciples. It says, when he... When his disciples came to him, then he opened his mouth and taught them. Right? So the Beatitudes is actually Jesus' first sermon to the first church. Right? That is what we have here. The first sermon to the first church. And he kind of goes through uh, some of the uh, important aspects of a, of a, a Christian. So it's the first sermon to the first church. Yeah, 
That's what the that's what uh, the Sermon on the Mount is. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are all the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the first sermon to the first church by Christ himself. And he opens up with what we call the Beatitudes. And it starts off in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is kind of that lesson of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So all these people here on earth that are famous celebrities and, you know, running around with millions and billions of dollars and super successful and have no uh, troubles or cares in this world. Life comes a little too easy for them. They will be last. Right. And those people who continuously do the right thing, even though they get bit in the rear end for it. Uh, those people who continuously try to be a good person, even though nobody seems to care, and a life kind of, kind of keeps kicking you around because you keep making the right decision, but you keep making the right decision anyways because it's right, those people will be first. Did you know that there's going to be a kingdom in the, uh, the end days? There will be an actual worldwide kingdom led by Christ himself. Now, kingdoms have hierarchies, don't they? And the Bible teaches us that right now our, uh, our ranking in the heavenly system is a little lower than the angels. We rank lower than angels right now. But when the, tr- when the church is uh, raptured out and we're in heaven and uh, we have the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and so forth, then we will rank just below Christ above the angels. And during Christ's millennial reign here on the earth, there will be an order of rank. And your rank will determine greatly on your life here on earth. And the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? You may have not have a lot of uh, going on for you here on earth, and you may be poor in spirit a lot of the times, life kind of keeping you down. But when we reach that kingdom one day, you will outrank most. You'll be able to give angels orders. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Have you ever noticed during a time of mourning, uh, great loss and sorrow, that you can almost feel a sort of spiritual comfort. That as you, uh, as you mourn and as you grieve, if you seek comfort in the arms of the Lord, you, you find it. It doesn't take away, it doesn't immediately make everything better. You're still sad, you're still hurting. But there is a really special kind of comfort you only get in those moments. And it's a very special thing. And if you ever feel it, it'll really strengthen your faith. So blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inheriting the earth. And that is, again, that first shall be last and last shall be first thing. But you'll notice that the rewards are kind of ramping up, right? Uh, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, being filled with all righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, mercy from God. Uh, Jesus tells the story of the, uh, the servant 
who owed his master a great debt. And the master, instead of sending the servant to prison, agreed a great plea of the servant to forgive him the entire debt. And then that servant went out to somebody who owed him a, a debt, much smaller than that he owed his master. And uh, the, the man pleaded for him for forgiveness like he pleaded to his master, but instead the servant denied the man that owed him and had him sent to prison. And so the master comes back to the servant and he says, how could you do this horrible thing after I forgave you even even greater debt and sends the servant to prison anyways uh, for the debt? And so the lesson there is God has forgiven us a tremendous debt. And that is the first lesson we must learn as Christians. That is basic foundational and principle. You must learn first and foremost, God forgave you a tremendous debt. And that whatever somebody on this earth has done against you pales in comparison to what you did to Christ. You say, what did I do to Christ? You did that to Christ. You put him on that cross. You go back and reread all the pain and suffering Jesus endured on the cross. That's your fault. And if he is able to so easily forgive you for that, how can we not forgive other people who have done far less to us? Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see that ramping up again. We see uh, the pure in in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be known as the children of God. Right? So the pure in heart, they get to see God. But those who take that purity and try to harbor peace between people, they are known as the children of God. Not just see God. But they get to see God and take God's name as their own, almost like they've been adopted into the family of God. And then you have beyond that, uh, those that are persecuted for righteousness sake, those that continue to do the right thing and then are attacked in some way for that. And they inherit the very kingdom of God itself. So we see these blessings ramping up. And uh, we come to the plateau, the point that Jesus is trying to make over this whole thing in verse 11. Right? He's been coming to this point. These people are blessed for this, and these people are blessed for that, and these will be their blessings, and these are good things. But he says in verse 11, blessed are ye. When men, not if, but when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. I've had that happen. I'm sure you have too. I've had that happen to me uh, while working for a church. Uh, had the pastor come to me and tell me, I want you to get together with so-and-so and we're going to work out a, a sort of a children's program uh, for Christmas. And I want you guys to get together and start working that out. And so I went to the man and I said, we need to sit down and talk about this. The pastor said so. And he kind of nodded and I went off on a few ideas that I had and, and he kind of I uh, was talking to me about it a little bit, and I said, so just, I guess just think about those things over, let me know what you think, and then we'll iron out the details. And I went off. And then after that conversation, uh, he went to the pastor and told me that I had never said anything to him, and that I was being lazy about it, and he would just go ahead and head up the whole thing, because evidently I wasn't going to do anything. And the pastor believed him. And uh, the pastor called me in, and he said, why haven't you done anything yet? And I said, I had this whole conversation with 
so-and-so and, you know, said everything that uh, I was going to do. And, and uh, he said, well, he told me you haven't said anything to him. I said, well, then he's lying. Pastor said, well, why would he lie to me? So why would I lie to you? You know, sometimes you can do all the right things and uh, still feel like you're being punished for it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, this is important to make sure that uh, you can never be falsely accused of something, right? And I've been involved in, in several churches and I always make a point that if we're working in the children's ministry, that there's always more than one adult with the kids. Now, in our situation here is a little different because they're my kids and we're all sort of family here. Uh, so it's not a big deal that, you know, their aunt or grandma or mom is in there by themselves with them. But when we get to that place where we have a large crowd of kids in here as a church, we ever do vacation Bible school or anything like that, it's going to be important that we have more than one person with the kids in every location. It's important that you be careful about bathroom time and helping kids to the bathroom and so forth. We, we have to be careful about these things in our day and time because there will be those who will say all manner of evil against you falsely. There will be people out there who want to try to say you did something you didn't actually do. And if we cross our T's and dot our I's and make sure we do everything just right, then we'll be able to prove we didn't do anything wrong. So it's about being prepared. But there are people out there who want to uh, ruin you, ruin all the good things you do. And that's just the way the world's always worked. And Jesus is saying when these horrible things happen, verse 12, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. I don't know about you guys, but when I get lied about, my first thought isn't rejoice, right? But it should be. Think about, you ever heard the story of Paul and Silas being arrested at midnight? It's a tremendous story. They get arrested. They get beaten and arrested, thrown in prison at midnight. You know what the first thing they do is? They start singing hymns. They get excited, start hopping up and down and singing hymns for being arrested, that is the energy we're talking about here. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, uh, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So this is the greatest beatitude. Now I'm, I'm wrapping up here very quickly, but this is the greatest beatitude. is for us to rejoice and be exceeding glad when we see the world persecuting us. And I'll be honest with you, there are other churches out there that don't appreciate what I'm doing trying to start Faith Baptist Church. But you know what? It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You know, it may take us a while to get where we're going, especially when other people are making it hard for us. But if God be for us, who can be against us? Right? If you're doing something, not just for this church, but in your own individual lives, you're doing something that you know God wants you to do, you just got to be a little patient. Because nobody can stand against you if God has decided he's for it, right? And so we, we stand with the Lord. We rejoice and be exceeding glad when people stand against us when we're trying to do something right because it kind of proves we're doing the right thing. We're on the right track. Uh, the people who are against the Lord don't care for it. And that's a good sign that we're for the Lord. Uh, but also, we're in some pretty good company. 
They persecuted the prophets of the Old Testament the same way. They persecuted the uh, New Testament disciples and apostles the same way. And uh, when we get attacked for what we believe, uh, we should rejoice and be exceeding glad. Not as though we should go out looking for battles. Uh, You enjoy that time of peace while you have it in your life. But if those battles come your way, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Because it means you're doing the right thing. And if you hold on to those things we know to be right, uh, you'll reach out on the other side uh, far better for it. Uh, That is our lesson for this morning. Uh, We will be back at five minutes after 11 for the Sunday morning service. And next week is Family Feud. So brush up on those lessons.